Don't forget to check out another podcast of ours called Escaping 1980, where we explore the causes, impacts, and lasting effects of one of the most infamous events in American agricultural history, the 1980s farm crisis. You'll find Escaping 1980 wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome. Thanks, everyone, for joining. David here at the end of April. April showers bring May flowers is what I always grew up hearing, that rule of thumb. Actually raining here in Indiana at the end of April. Happy to have Jeff Young joining us. Jeff is a familiar name, a familiar face around AEI. Great to have him joining me on the co-host of the podcast this week. Jeff, thanks for all the work you've done, and thanks for joining me this week. Thanks, David. It's raining in Kentucky, too, by the way. So April flowers brings May showers. Is that a saying you've heard before? I did, with the add-on of May flowers bring pilgrims. Okay. April showers, May flowers, May flowers, pilgrims. Yeah, that was definitely (laughs) something I grew up with. The May flower, May flowers. There you go. I always grew up with you plant corn when the hedge tree leaves is the size of a squirrel's ear. And then, of course, we got... BT corn. The question was, have you seen any BT squirrels? Do their ears grow a little bit different? But of course, in Southeast Kansas, where I grew up, the corn gets planted at the end of March, 1st of April. So it's a little earlier in the growing season. Yeah, always those little interesting rules of thumb. It's always fun. So Jeff, wanted to chat with you about a few things this week. First off, you're coming back on for another season of the Yield Project, a weekly update of what's going on. So tell us, tell the new listeners, the new subscribers about that and what they can expect throughout the growing season. Absolutely. So in 2019, David and I kicked off this idea of can we take information that's given to us regularly throughout the growing season of corn and soybeans, data publicly available from the USDA, and does that information that we see throughout the season correlate very much, or at least enough, to end-of-year yields for corn and soybeans? And the answer is actually somewhat a pleasantly surprising amount. And so we kicked it off officially in 2020, a perfect year to try something new, with the AEI Yield Model Project, or the, the Yield Project, And so we had just had a blast getting that put together. We're going to repeat it this year. It was a good success last year. What's interesting is that as the information from the USDA updates every week on crop conditions, say, what we would expect about yields, or at least the anticipated range of final yields for corn and soybeans, changes as well. And so we can update our beliefs and inform our conversations every week throughout the year as we go from planting all the way to harvest at the end of the year. So it's it's a lot of fun to do, but it's also really valuable. A couple of things I always like to chime in and add is I think weather models do a good job of this. They create these ensembles, which is a group of forecasts that you look at together. And so Jeff, you provide an ensemble, right? There's just not one right. estimate for every week. Yeah, not only is it an estimate every week, it's multiple estimates every week. So we, we do have an ensemble of models, each with its own set of assumptions, 
each with its own advantages, each with its own disadvantages or, or drawbacks or limitations. And, you know, we're upfront about those. No model is perfect, but some models are useful. <laughs> but all are interesting. <laughs> and I think that's what's really important is we're all hearing this information anecdotally and it impacts our decision making. And even though there are limits to the way we're using these data, you're using these data in these models, it helps us sort of ground truth where our mind goes. Because if you start hearing about dryness in the Western Plains, you start to build these expectations. Well, how is that actually showing up in the data? And it provides a bit of a ground truthing. And I also like the ensemble because it helps us triangulate a little bit. We know that there's a range here and we can start to see how that range is playing out. I always like to see when one sort of drifts a little bit and I'm like, okay, why is one drifting, but the others aren't? And then I always wonder like, okay, is there a leading indicator here? But the point here is that lots going on and keep an eye on. The other thing I really like about this, Jeff, that you do that I don't see anybody else do. We'll see on social media, people sharing, oh, my estimate for this upcoming report is 171. And then they sort of disappear. And then they come back a few weeks later and they say, oh, my estimate is now 172. And you got to keep track of all those. They're sort of disconnected, but you show this graph, you stand, I guess, in front of your models a little bit or behind them, where whichever one's the more liable side, and you plot the expectations and how they change over time. So you start to see the trends as they unfold and you recognize the growing season changes. Such are estimates and our forecast change. That's absolutely right. I mean, the estimates do change from week to week because the world and the conditions change week to week. And so what we're seeing in the crop as that evolves, so do our expectations about how well that crop is going to do when we bring it in and, and put it in storage or take it to market. That is a nice feature. You're right. Not only do we just give you the numbers each week and say, all right, here's the update. We also update the charts. And so you can see visually for all you visual learners, you have a picture in front of you that updates each and every week. And so if there's a trend, you know, we're getting the right rains at the right time and right temperatures and things are looking good for, say, the corn crop in a given year, you'll see that reflected in the models. They'll pick up on that. Or if something bad happens, like dryness starts to pick up and that momentum builds or a derecho strikes, that, that gets picked up as well. Last year, one of the lessons I captured was, of course, in the beginning of May, it's going to happen this year, the USDA puts a stake in the ground, which is essentially a kind of a trend yield with basically pulling out any ad adverse weather effects, yeah. any really severe weather. And what was happening last year is your estimates were, well, I guess reality was the USDA's first estimate was in May, and then they came out in August with their first real data, right? Not just a trend. It was sort of an informed estimate. Mm -hmm. And that was a big increase. But what was going on is your model was picking up on this. And every week that corn number was sort of drifting up by half a bushel. The little engine that could, it just sort of kept going up. And my mind hadn't picked that up. My brain wasn't registering that based on all the news or things I was observing. But that model was just sort of slowly ratcheting its way up. And that helped me think about, okay, the conditions aren't dramatically swinging, but they are trending very, very slowly in this one direction. So that's what this trend is really good about is you can start to see how things move and how expectations are changing. Jeff, you put out about every week an output, either a video or a written report. Mm -hmm. We share those. We update those every time. So you can scroll back 
and see what the previous week's commentary is. We make Jeff update his documents, but we keep the text from the week before there. So it's it's a lot of transparency there. And so Jeff does a great job of talking about what he's seeing and, and what he's thinking about. And that's a great way to help our, our thinking as well. So we have a couple new forecast network questions about the probability of above or below trend yields, or actually they're above trend yields for corn and soybeans. We put the questions at 179 for corn and 50 bushels for soybeans. So you can start forecasting those today and you can see how your own expectations change over time. I know I use Jeff's estimates a lot, especially in the early growing season. Jeff, I want to switch gears here a little bit. So we met when we were both at Purdue and you had an interesting dissertation topic. I want you to, I think it was chapter one of your dissertation. So if anyone's going to look up that up in the library, chapter one of Jeff Young's PhD dissertation. Tell us a little bit about this because it has a little bit of relevance to corn and ethanol and escaping 1980. Absolutely. No, yeah, it, it was chapter one, three completely unrelated issues that got glued together and made a doctoral dissertation. This was the first one, chapter one, and I got to present it at, you know, the odd seminar and conference and stuff, and there's a lot of interest for it, and I hope it's of interest here as well. Basically, what was going on was in the 1980s, you know, bad things happened, the farm financial crisis. One pattern that emerged out of that was that the overwhelming majority or just a disproportionate amount of the farm bankruptcies and financial hardships were higher in the remotest parts of the U.S., so like the Great Plains, the Western Corn Belt, and it was a lot lower, a lot less of an issue, still bad, but I mean, paled in comparison, in places along river terminals or on the coasts or in the eastern end of the Corn Belt, areas where it was more populated, more industrialized, and less remote. So the advantageously located land had less trouble correcting in the market. And so my doctoral advisor, Jim Binkley, wrote a paper, actually, with his previous PhD student, Martin Benirschka, and their paper won an award back in the early 1990s that said, okay, why is that? Why is this geographic pattern emerging? Turns out there was an economic theory from the 1800s that said, okay, figure the growth in value of farmland as you're valuing farmland. As it changes from year to year, you have to factor in transport costs. So farmland growth is a function of its location. And so the higher the transport cost, the more volatile farmland values are, according to this theory. And they found substantial empirical evidence favoring that in the county loan rates. So from county to county to county, the better the loan rate, the lower the transport cost. The worse the loan rate, the worse the basis, and therefore the higher the transport cost in that county. They found that farmland in those counties also had a lot wilder swings up and down in farmland. So in the 1970s, as farmland values are going to the sky, they went up the fastest out west in the western corn belt, in the Great Plains, and they were a lot more gradual and sluggish in the eastern corn belt, the coasts and places like that. And so they said, well, this supports that theory from by David Ricardo in the 1800s. Is that what happened in the 1980s? And so they tested for that, and sure enough, it supported it. Well, land values, late 90s, early 2000s, and then absolutely in the ethanol boom, land values started climbing again. And once again, they went up the fastest on a percentage basis in the Great Plains and the Western Corn Belt. But once those values kind of 
peaked in 2013, 14, 15, correct me if I'm wrong here, David, they kind of started to stabilize and even in some areas started to come down a little bit, but it was almost a blip. It didn't really do much. And so the question was, okay, ethanol's had its heyday and land values have, have peaked. Maybe they're starting to come down. Why didn't they tank this time? Why wasn't there this issue, this disparity between the east and west parts of the Corn Belt? And so that essay in my dissertation, chapter one, said, well, there was a structural change. And that structural change was ethanol in conjunction with railroads, because, you know, the Staggers Act in 1980 deregulated freight rates and unit trains expanded throughout the western end of the Corn Belt and all that. So that made transportation costs less constraining for the remotely located farms. Well, if a bunch of ethanol plants get built around those remotely located farms in the western Corn Belt and in the Great Plains, that's really going to mitigate the issue of high transport costs and remoteness. And so that helped stabilize the land values in those remotely located counties, or at least that's the theory we propose and found evidence for. So long really, answer to your question. No, it's, it's great. I think it really ties in a lot to things that we've talked about and wrote about. We've seen farmland values and farm incomes, they typically swing more in those those states that are on the prairie. And I think part of this yeah. is they're transitioning, right? They're moving out of small grains and small acreage crops, and they're moving to these higher revenue crops. And the boom has felt really kind of on the margin. Uh, we, we call those, what is the margin, right? Sometimes people view that as marginal land as in the quality aspect, but I mean a margin as in these are the lands that transition in and out of corn and soybean production. No statement about the quality of the land, just where the changes happen. Not a lot of changes ever really happen in Indiana, Iowa, Illinois, Ohio. It's on the periphery that we see a lot of these acreage shifts. Think about Kansas is planting a lot of cotton the last few years. That's an, another example yeah. of things changing on the periphery or on the margin. I already thought this was interesting and it especially ties into to ethanol and these structural shifts that we've we've seen. So I think the other element that sort of makes this interesting is and we had a big trade war. And one of the things that we talked about during the trade war is it impacts basis a lot. And so even if we're shipping the same number of bushels out of the United States on export, if they have to go to a farther, more expensive place, that starts to impact the cash price that farmers receive. Part of this element that was offsetting this was maybe this ethanol story that was providing some stability there in those parts of the region. So that's a great story. And probably one of those topics that's maybe more relevant today than it was when you were doing the, the research of itself. Could uh, be, that, yeah. It's still interesting at the very least. Another topic that has maybe had its popularities ebbed and flowed, hemp. Tell us a little about your day job and your role with yeah. hemp. And I guess any observations that you've seen, you know, we had a lot of enthusiasm about hemp a couple years ago, and then it sort of dropped off the radar screen. So what's happened and where's the industry today? Yeah, so enthusiasm definitely peaked back in, in 2019 because of the December 2018 farm bill that moved hemp from an experimental only crop into more or less a regulated agricultural crop or a commodity crop. And then the 2014 Farm Bill moved it from controlled substance to experimental crops. It was, it was a very short-term journey after being on the controlled substance lists for you know seven decades plus. And so I, I really started learning about 
all this history in, in this crop when I started at Murray State late 2018, early 2019. And in addition to just being a professor of agribusiness and uh, ag finance, part of my role is to serve as the chief economist for the Murray State Center for Agricultural Hemp. And so I keep at least loose tabs on what's uh, developing in that sphere. And I've published one and a half journal articles on that matter. And so from what I've seen, yes, a lot of the hype, I guess, the, the excitement, the mania has kind of washed away since 2019. A lot of people were suddenly experts, depending on what the conversation was about revolving around hemp. There was more acres planted, more acres harvested than could be handled. It's a lot easier to plant 100 more acres than it is to build an entirely new processing facility. It's a problem of acceleration, you know, a motorcycle versus a bicycle. They'll both get there. One just takes off from the start line a whole lot faster than the other. And so that kind of caused a correction in floral hemp prices, kind of rearranged, restructured the market a little bit. In 2020, acres didn't quite get cut in half, but they reduced substantially. Uh, so that was one correction the market did. Prices seem to have bottomed out, at least from what I've read, from what I've seen and who I've talked to. So we may be closer to that equilibrium for 2021, but it's still too early to tell. Planting doesn't start for another month or two. It's still early. I want to put you a little on the spot. I know you don't have the data. I didn't really prep you for this, but you said acres in 2020 fell in half. That was versus 2019. Mm -hmm. Can you put some context around where 2020 acreage was compared to say 2016 or 2015 before the big buzz around the industry? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there were nationally total, there wasn't even a hundred thousand acres in the early days, maybe 50,000 in a exciting year. And then in 2019, right after the farm bill, anyone can get a grower's license and plant it for any amount of acreage, you know, subject to the laws and the fees and all that. We had a couple hundred thousand acres planted. So, I mean, it was a significant jump in planted acreage. And there were even more acres licensed than could be planted. So, I mean, it was just a high energy crop and market space to, to work in for a couple of years. And I mean, there's still some excitement as they're learning about more and more products they can make from the plant, either from the seeds or the grain or the fiber or from the flower. We're still learning it because it's still relatively new, even if it didn't come onto the scene officially until 2014, if you count it as an experimental crop. But as a commodity crop, 2018 is even more recent. And so we're still learning it. The industry's potentially still growing, right? We might have just saw like a supernova sort of of excitement, but that doesn't mean yeah. that the stars burn out, right? It's not at all. It's not at all. In, in fact, it's, it's even some people say it's even recovering a little bit and is going to climb upwards again a little bit from 2020. So there's this first wave of enthusiasm, and then it's sort of like you said, the bicycle versus motorcycle production shot out of the gate, right? As yeah, really fast and the production wasn't quite there or the manufacturing side of it wasn't quite able to keep up. But right. what happens after that, I think is the most relevant question for the industry and the future of the industry. And so be interesting to keep an eye on that. I'm gonna wrap this up here. And what's one thing uh, that you've been thinking about, you've been working on that's sort of 
maybe uh, off the wall or, or unique? Well, as a hobby, I started this in grad school. I got into growing citrus indoors. A fellow grad student of mine moved from West Lafayette down to Indianapolis, and so they got rid of a bunch of their stuff because they were moving into an apartment, he and his family. And one of the things he gave me was a kumquat tree. I did not know what kumquats were, but I learned, and uh, they're, they're actually really tasty, and I thought, well, you know, I'm going to try a lemon. I'm going to try a tangerine. I'm going to try pineapples, and so now I, I grow all those things. But this year, for the first time, and all those plants, it still freezes in the winter here in Kentucky. So I have to bring them inside. You know, they clutter up the office. But outside, I transplanted the other week five wild pawpaw trees in and around my property. It's a very unusual, very strange fruit, but I'm very excited to see what happens with that. So you are picking up pawpaws and putting them in your basket? <laughs> yes. If, if they yield any fruit, we'll, we'll have to see. But uh, the good news is they survived the transplant. They're putting out leaves and everything. So they. So are you growing these inside? They're outdoors. I oh, planted outdoors. them around okay. our woods and in the fence row and all because they like shade. So I'm going to try my hand at growing pawpaws this year. So Jeff, something you and I have talked about offline. <clears throat> I grew up in southeast Kansas. You grew up in... Kentucky mm -hmm. and the latitude are very similar. So we raised double crop soybeans, double crop soybeans probably got started in that part of your world. And, and the other thing that's very similar are blackberries. Yeah. I mean, a big part of my childhood was going around picking blackberries. Uh, we didn't have pawpaws, but blackberries are always a big part of our uh, summer tradition. It always amazes me how much time that I, and it's still to this day, farms in this area, spend making sure the blackberries don't overtake a fence row or a low spot in a pasture especially. And they can yep. become a noxious weed of sorts. And then if you think about what blackberry prices are at the grocery store. So it was like this big mix match between my childhood experience and the broader market for these things. Anyway, well, you have to keep us updated. Have you, you've had some success with these citrus trees, I assume? Oh yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we're picking and eating kumquats right now. And then the tangerine should be ready next week from the look of things. Still no pineapples, but those can take even a couple of years to grow. So they're, they're a lot So slower. can you describe, I'm, I'm afraid to Google search this for what might pop up. Could you describe what a kumquat is and, and what its profile is as a fruit? And then as we wrap this up. So the variety, yeah, the variety of kumquat we have is between the size of a quarter and a silver dollar. Um, it's round? And it, it's round, yeah. It looks like a small orange, very, very okay. small. It's incredibly tart flesh, like we're talking lemon or lime. It will make your eyes water. But the skin, you don't peel it like an orange. You eat the skin because the skin is like a Jolly Rancher. So, I mean, it is sugar overload. It is so sweet. So if you take a bite of skin and flesh of the kumquat, it's a perfect balance. Just like putting sugar on a grapefruit. <laughs> well, I have learned a lot today, Jeff. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to look forward Thanks, to your yield project. And uh, in the meantime, stay curious. Everyone. Thanks. Mm -hmm.